my first smartphone was the Nexus one. And it was so bad that it turned me off Android forever. Because <laughs> it was like, I was living in, a, in the like loft above a house and there was no insulation. One of the windows was broken and it was the middle of winter. You wake up and you see your breath kind of thing. Like it was not heated. <laughs> uh -huh. And the touch screen just wouldn't respond if it got below a certain temperature. And so there was one morning where like my alarm goes off and I can't stop it because the touch screen doesn't respond. <laughs> and so it's just like, no, this this sucks too much. Yeah, so I had the the G1, which was also called the uh, HTC Dream. Hmm. <laughs> and then I had the Nexus S, because I, I would go every other generation of phone, basically. And I've done that for a while. And now I have like a Pixel 3a that I still use, and I'm considering getting an iPhone at some point with the dynamic island. I know. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I just think it would have been really funny if they named it I land. Oh, boo. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been just a, because at that point it's like, they haven't, I know the iPhone's still that, but they haven't really like emphasized the like, you know, the I in so long. It would have been hilarious. Lowercase I, capital L. Yeah. The I naming thing was a Steve Jobs thing. And so uh -huh. after he died, they haven't introduced a new I thing. Mm. So... It's one of Steve's whimsy things that the company has distanced itself from. Yeah, I, I mean, the Dynamic Island does seem a little bit more whimsical. Yeah, it has a sort of an impoverished whimsy to it. Where it's like, if you, <laughs> if, you know, if you've been living in this bleakness for so long, the fact that it has anticipation and elasticity to the way that the pure black rectangle resizes itself, like... <laughs> That's not quite... See, this is why I like to mention these things so that I can get your uh, your scathing reviews of them. Like, And if it, if it were truly whimsical, it would be end-user programmable so that you could put your own little googly eyes on it and make it look like something out of uh, like Wattam or one of those games by the guy who made... Uh, Katamari Damashi like put little wiggly eyes on it and then it would be then it would be whimsical a little <laughs> caterpillar legs or something like that I don't know yeah I think Apple and end user programming haven't been a thing for quite a while oh you kid you what little you know of you what you speak of how you speak it <laughs> um <laughs> like Apple Script has been a thing for what, like three decades now almost? And it is still supported and they're still adding features to it. When they built shortcuts recently and brought that to the Mac, they put in integration with Automator, the thing that it's replacing. Like Apple for a while there were sort of quiet on scripting, but they have recently come back around to it and are working on it actively. And they fired Sal Sagoyan, the, the guy who created automator and um and was like a huge champion of end user scripting but they've been keeping the flame alive and they seem to be institutionally of an opinion at whatever level that makes this kind of decision that like user scripting on their platforms is something they like and that they want to nurture and encourage they just don't make it a tentpole feature because i think they see it as a niche thing but it's a niche thing that they do support yeah I see what you're saying, and I definitely see that angle. And Shortcuts is is kind of impressive. I guess the thing I was thinking about is, like, you know, I can't execute arbitrary code on my iPad, and I would love to be able to so I could build a tool. Because I really want to program on my iPad in a nicer way, and the only real answer for doing that is cloud computation because they they require that you don't have 
code interpretation. So they can make the end user programming, but I can't. I think they relaxed that in the past couple of years in that one of the entitlements you can get on an app that you submit now is a JIT entitlement and you can get permission to have your app's memory space be read-write rather than just read-only. Two or three years ago, you couldn't do that. Hmm. I'll have to check it out then because that would definitely be... Uh, that's one of the things as I build things that I'm like, you know what? It would be really nice to have this. Yeah. Do certain things on my, my iPad with, you know, it's touch. It's nice touch interface and yeah. pencil and all of that. And for sure, they don't give you... <laughs> If they don't give you much in the way of APIs that you would actually want to build useful stuff, like doing, you know, background audio kind of things. Like if you want to make a music app that can like send audio samples over to another music app that's also running, like, uh, you know, if you want to have some effect app that like just takes audio from some other source and applies some crazy effects to it and then passes that on to some other app, like you can't do that. But maybe that was an intentional choice because they realize that worse is better. <laughs> <sighs> is this oh, our segue? The segue, the segue. Oh dear. Uh, All right, so okay, so if that's where we're starting, here's how I'm going to start this. Better, the outside experience is what matters. If anything needs to be compromised, it should be the internals of the implementation. This is Apple. The outside experience is what matters. Worse the internal implementation is what matters. If anything needs to be compromised, it can be the outside experience. This is Windows. I rest my case. It, it, it's so interesting. I, I, I agree with you, I think, on, on this. Uh, I definitely think Apple is kind of the, the quote-unquote right thing uh, approach, right? So for anyone you know listening, we, we read uh, some, some papers about worse is better. In fact, we read three papers about worse is better. Uh, we got The Rise of Worse is Better by Richard Gabriel. We got Worse is Better is Worse by somebody who is totally not Richard Gabriel. Named Nikki Ben Borbaki? Yeah, which is actually Richard Gabriel writing a rebuttal to himself. We should acknowledge is a reference to Nicholas Borbaki, the, the fake mathematician. Oh, I didn't know that. And then we got, is worse really better by Richard Gabriel? So we got this, like, these are very, very short. It's almost even a stretch to call them papers. They're almost like notes or memos in some ways. It, the context is really like why Lisp didn't win. And so he's trying to give an explanation for that and argue for this worse is better philosophy. Well, or at least he's considering if that's the reason. Like, I think the fact that there's this back and forth between Nickel Ben slash Peter um, and uh, this, oh, I did it, didn't I? Peter Gabriel. Oh, damn it. <laughs> no, no, I did not mean to do that. Damn it. I've been waiting for it. No. Uh, what is it? Richard Gabriel. There we go. Oh, God. Um, okay, so the, the, the fact that there's this back and forth between these different papers uh, makes it feel a little bit to me like maybe how I felt doing this podcast or other things in my life, I'm sure you've had the same experience, where you come out of the gate with some, oh, I had this realization or I had this idea and it's just been kicking around in my head for a while and I think this is it. And you say it 
and it goes out there and it makes a big splash and people are like, oh my God, how could you think that? Or, oh yeah, that's so true. I totally know what you're saying. And you think about it and think about it and you realize, you know what? That's not quite it. And you sort of continue wrestling with something in your mind, even after it's gone out into the world and other people have made a mountain out of it. So it's neat to look at this this trio of papers. I call it the worse is better family of thought products because <laughs> it's not just the initial paper, which I have some impressions on. <laughs> I guess we'll get to that when we get there, but it's like, I, yeah, yeah. Um, but the 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 follow ups, it, both of them feel sort of like different ways of saying, well, that initial one didn't really get it. It didn't really, you know, I made a cut, but it wasn't quite the right cut. I should have maybe measured twice and cut once. Instead, I just made a cut. And and so the the follow ups, I thought, really do help to dial in what's the point being made, what's the lesson that you can take away from this, what's the the right way to think about this dynamic here. And is this dynamic even a thing? And I have to say, worse is better is worse. The the rebuttal mm -hmm. has to be the best performance art of like pretending you're a Hacker News thread before Hacker News threads were a thing. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, like it's it's a real, there's real argument, there's real content in there, but the, the rhetoric is just, it is like the best version of everything you see on Hacker News. Yeah, yeah. Right. It is the style of argument that programmers often use. And and because it's like also satire in some ways, because, you know, it's a fake writer, et cetera. Like, I don't know. There's just some some beauty about it. Responding to your own writing under a pseudonym is a great thing. Like if you're a writer, you should do this, too, because it's it's delightful to read. And it's also very empowering because you can criticize yourself in ways that other people can't criticize you because of, you know, decency or not wanting to appear to be a mean person on the internet. Like responding to your own writing in a scathing way is just a gift. It's a, it's a treasure. And so um, I think having that, like comparing it to Hacker News, totally. Like there's some of that in there, but there's also some really good like self-biting. Oh yeah, absolutely. And especially because, uh, first name check, Richard is, <laughs> um, he's actually a good writer. Like he's, he's got a, a style and character. And so that when wielded in this sort of playful, like, oh yeah, I'm going to write a fake response to myself sort of way. Like it, it really shows, you know, how much charm he can put into what he's saying and how he's saying it. Yeah, I think if it was anyone else, it might not come across as well. But he just, he has this little tongue-in-cheek way of writing in general that I think becomes even better as he's talking about himself in the third person. Mm -hmm. yeah. The biggest thing I think our audience will want to see out of this is like, how is this future of coding relevant? Because I think of all the papers we've done, this is the, the least obviously, uh, you know, future of coding relevant. But it might be the most actionable of all the ones that we've read. Yeah, I, I agree. In a lot of ways, this is kind of a, an advice piece. It's giving you a different lens to look at the work we've been doing and to say, should I be approaching it this way? And what have I been losing out on by approaching it the way I have been? Because I definitely think most FOC things fall on one part of this spectrum. Yeah. All right, so... We get this kind of contrast between these two approaches. There's the MIT approach and the New Jersey approach. 
The MIT approach is also called the right thing. And the New Jersey approach is this worse is better school. What makes the shortest of the three papers, which is is worse really better, the third one, what makes it useful is that it actually goes back and explains these ideas in the way that the first paper failed to. They're both trying to build something good. The way that they go about building it is ever so subtly different. Here's an exact quote, and I'll do radio voice on this, from the third paper is worse, really better. With the right thing, and remember the two, the two sides are the right thing and worse is better. Those are the two sides. The right thing, MIT, Stanford, that's the Apple-like one, clearly, you know, thumbs up here. And then <laughs> worse is better is the New Jersey style. It's Windows, thumbs down. <laughs> With the right thing. <laughs> now I can't do radio voice because I'm laughing. God damn it. <clears throat> With the right thing. Designers are equally concerned with simplicity, correctness, consistency, and completeness. With worse is better, designers are almost exclusively concerned with the implementation simplicity and performance, and will work on correctness, consistency, and completeness only enough to get the job done, sacrificing any of these other qualities for simplicity. So to me, that explanation from the third paper is the thing that actually speaks to their difference, that there's these four attributes, simplicity, correctness, consistency, and completeness. And on the right thing side, you really want the software that you write to be perfect from the perception of the user. The person who's using the software from the outside should be treated with the highest respect, and they should have a piece of software that is complete, consistent, correct, and from the outside, simple. And if you need to make the internals really, you know, crazy and scary in order to satisfy that outside experience, fine. And this matches, not to make more of this joke, to actually make it serious, this matches what I've heard about the philosophy of software engineering within Apple from, heard this from Don Melton and other folks. Don Melton's the guy who uh, started the Safari project, for instance. They are totally okay with shipping software that is an absolutely terrifying goddamn mess on the inside if that's what you need to make something that feels really amazing to use and does all the things that you want from the outside. That, you know, do whatever horrible dark magics on the internals that you need to do in order to make it nice for the outside user. Whereas the worse is better style is it's almost like running a marathon instead of a sprint. It's like you need the internals to be simple and to be workable and to be improvable. And it, this, you know, the essays will explain why in the context of the 1980s, these things mattered. It's a different context today. But um, you want those internals to be simple because that enables you as the person working on it to have a better time maintaining and evolving this software. And if you need to make the software less featureful or inconsistent from the outside where it's like, oh, if you want to use it this one way, you have to do one thing. And if you want to use it this other way, you have to do this wildly different, unexpected thing that you wouldn't think to do. That's okay if that's what you need to make the internal simple. That's my best understanding of what the trade-off between the two schools is. I think that's a great explanation. The one caveat I would give that may be a little different from the Apple characterization is if you trade off performance, that's also okay. 
So like, you know, it might not be the best user experience because the performance might be not anywhere near as good as it should be, but that's okay. It's okay to give up performance in order to have simplicity of the user experience. So Lisp is the example, you know, usually given here, which, you know, if you think about it, especially like early Lisps, it was this beautiful expression, this beautiful way of programming, but it was way slower, like orders of magnitude slower than assembly, right? Which its interface was nowhere near as as nice, but the the end result could be better because of that performance. So the right thing is the best, except for in terms of performance. You mentioned that might be different from Apple. <laughs> Welcome to the, the accidental, accidental tech podcast. Um, <laughs> that is actually Apple. Like Apple stuff has always been slower for things that like you've always been able to go over to a windows machine and get hardware components that are commodity and don't have apple's insane markup and so you can get an edge on hardware performance that way that makes sense um especially since they switched to x86 you know in the mid-2000s and and like for gaming and that kind of thing like it's no contest right windows is always less overhead you can get more direct access to the screen whatever 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 will make it easier for developers to go in and run their stuff wildly fast and so even there i think the comparison holds up Macs are slow, caveat. I say this as a lifetime Mac user. I'll, I'll fight anybody. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> they, are, they are slow, asterisk. <laughs> yeah, I think we can, uh, we, can probably, we can probably talk about Apple and how they meet or fail to meet these various philosophies for the whole podcast, but I think we should... Uh... <laughs> I, I think we've I think we've gotten it, the point across now because I could like well what about the first iPhone and the fact that it didn't have apps and anyways uh, yeah and but. we should right God damn it somebody's got to <laughs> take this trillion dollar company to task take them down a peg uh, but yes yeah, so I think this has been helpful for kind of characterizing this thing and so the contrast we get here in the paper is not Apple versus Microsoft no know, of course not. It, it's Linux, or sorry, not Linux. I just said I meant Lisp, and I was look. I said I meant to say Lisp, and I was looking at the word Unix. So Linux. Uh, That's uh, what the anyways. L in Linux stands for is Lisp. Lisp, yes. <laughs> gross. So, so gross. Lisp versus Unix and C. Yes. Right. That's the contrast we get here, which I think you know, especially at that time, made a lot of sense. Right. Common Lisp was this very designed system doing the correct thing making sure that every part fits together making sure that the philosophy is the best it could possibly be you have the most flexible software maybe not as fast and the implementation is going to be quite intense especially like the the common list object system right like there's a lot involved in that uh whereas early unix and c incredibly simple implementation with perhaps a clunkier interface to do that. And so we get uh, kind of a story to contrast these two approaches and to see how somebody solving the same problem could take both approaches. And this is called the PC losering problem, which I just think is great. And I'll, I'll go ahead and explain why it's called the, the PC losering. PC here does not mean personal computer. It means program counter. So it's like what program is running on the machine. And loser here is the MIT word for user. They referred to, instead of calling things user mode, they called them loser mode. Do you know what, where that came from? I don't know the history on that. Uh, no, but it just feels very, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, this like kind of elitist 
like, oh, the, the users of our programs are, I mean, there's still that attitude, right? That users are the ones who are, are wrong and our software is right. I bet there's some interesting history here that somebody somebody in the audience is just like screaming at their car stereo. <laughs> so yes, so losering means making the program counter go to user mode. Uh, and so there's this problem that we don't have to read like the, the full details here, but basically this is talking about kind of a, a implementation detail of the, the operating system. They're both working on Unix. Uh, in this case, there's two people, one from MIT and one from Berkeley uh, working on Unix. And they're discussing this problem and how does Unix deal with it. And the problem is if you're trying to make a system call and the program is currently running in the middle of a bunch of user state, how do you deal with that? Because you can't really easily save exactly where the user is. And there's times where you have to like, exit out and return back to the user rather than dealing with the system call. The right thing is to back out and restore the user program PC to the instruction that invoked the system routine so that the resumption of the user program after the interrupt, for example, re-enters the system routine. So the idea here is like you need to do this complicated mechanism inside to make sure you bring the program back so it can finally do this system call again, because the first time it didn't work. What we are told is that the, the MIT person didn't see anything in Unix that did this complicated logic, and New Jersey guy uh, says, yeah, they, they don't do it. Instead, every single time you make a system call, it will just tell you, did it succeed or not? And you have to deal with it. You, the person writing the code that's going to make the system call. Yes. There's no like, oh yeah, we'll figure out how to bring your program back so it can automatically make this system call in the right time. It's just like, ah, no, it failed. Uh, you better deal with the fact that it failed and like sit here and loop and until it works. And so this is this contrast between the right thing, which requires really complex implementation and the worst is better approach, which is so easy to make, right? You just set an error code and you make sure the programmer deals with that error. It's easier to make the operating system in which this takes place. Like if you're implementing Unix, it's easier to say, oh yeah, system calls can just return an error code rather than system calls are guaranteed to succeed. But if there's an interrupt in the middle of the system call, the operating system needs to do a Herculean task of figuring out exactly how to resolve that so that the program that is calling that system call doesn't have to know or care what's going on. It can just like be written assuming the system call will always succeed. This is what we're given. It's kind of this like simplicity trade-off, right? Do we make the interface simple, meaning you write your program assuming system calls just work. The interface to a system call is really easy. You make a system call. And we make the implementation more difficult. We have to keep uphold that simple interface. Or do we just complicate the interface a little bit? Now you make the system call, but there's also this error condition you have to check. And now our implementation is simple. We don't have to worry about doing all the complicated things. Who owns the complexity? Is the complexity owned by the underlying system or is it pushed up to the users of that system yeah and when i was trying to you know we've done this apple microsoft comparison but when i was trying to like apply this to programming languages today i have to admit 
it was hard to really make, I could always end up making an argument for both. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know if this distinction is sharp enough for me to really decide which language is making which approach. Yeah, I don't know that it's something that I could easily point to a language and say, this whole language takes this approach, but I can definitely point to specific ideas. Like, I'm sure you've had the feeling uh, or you've heard people say, how many tens of thousands of developer hours have been wasted because of this one detail in some low-level system abstraction where if they had done it slightly differently, we wouldn't have had this problem. That's definitely something I hear people say again and again when when looking at like, you know, some some aspect of the networking stack, maybe, or something about HTTP or something like that, where it's like, oh, if we had done something slightly differently when when designing TCP IP or whatever, it would have saved thousands and thousands of hours of debugging implementation or um, I don't want to say implementations because we're talking about two separate systems here. Each of them has their own implementation, but like the the lower level system pushing this additional complexity outside of itself onto the users of that system just ends up like being multiplied over all of the people who have to use it, where if they had just swallowed that little bit of extra complexity internally, when they first started, it would have saved all of the users of that system, all of that debugging pain. So that's definitely a, a thing that happens. But I didn't have anything where it's like, oh, this is a a language where they did the right thing, or this is a language where they did the worse is better, other than, you know, the examples that Gabriel gives us. I think if you put things in contrast to each other, hmm. mm -hmm. it's easier to do this rather than like one, did this one take the worse is better approach where, versus like between these two things, which one is more worse is better? Which one is more the right thing? Uh, so, uh, you know, I know there's been some flame wars going on, but I'll, I'll, I'm not trying to add to them, but, uh, Zig versus Rust. Zig definitely feels like the, the, the worse is better approach and Rust feels like the right thing approach. Now I'm not saying what wins here, right? And the right thing isn't saying it's better because obviously this, you know, paper is telling us worse is better is better, but Rust is very upfront design. Let's build the whole thing so that you never have to worry about memory safety. We're going to make the implementation as complex as we need to in order to achieve that goal. Whereas Zig says, like, we can get memory safety, but it's not going to be a crazy complicated implementation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to weigh in on memory safety because I don't really have a, <laughs> a, a, a pony in this race. Um, I do have a pony, uh, but not in this race. Do you race ponies? Is pony racing a thing? Uh, pony racing is a thing. Whoa. Um, but not that I do. I don't. Racing is a. So my wife's a horse trainer, but we do shows where it's like people go ride horses around in a circle and not race. It's just about, you know, look at the proper horse. form and Aww. yes, and look at the horse. Uh, and we just bought a uh, 19 week old horse. A weanling. A weanling. Uh, Is that the name for a fan of the late 80s, early 90s band Ween? Because should be. Uh -huh. Yep, that's that's what it is. Uh, definitely not a horse that just got weaned off of its mother's milk. Yeah. Huh. Anything ling. I'm a, I'm a lispling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I've, I've just been weaned off of closure and I'm starting to take an interest in racket. <laughs> Yeah. So <laughs> instead of Rust Zig, I could have compared like Rust and Go, 
And I think you would still see that same comparison. But if you compare Go and something else, you might see Go as that right thing, right? Like Go versus C is probably more of the right thing than worse is better, right? Like there's a much more complication in the implementation than like, especially like early C, let's just say. Right. Now, there's another couple dynamics at play here before we start playing the, the very fun game of which one is the right thing? Is it JavaScript or Scala? Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> That's hard. That's so hard. Um, really? Before, that one seems obvious to me. No, not at all. <laughs> Are you... <laughs> Scala is cursed. It's so... Uh, anyways. Oh, um, but Scala is the quintessential right thing approach. No, the implementation is a garbage fire. It's a pile the of tires. The implementation is so a, complicated. Yes. 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 To so, achieve ends that you might not agree with. Oh, but I suppose. Ends. Yeah, that is the right thing. Damn. Uh-huh. Yeah. You gotta you gotta take away sorry like it's quote the right thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's it's a name. It's not it is right. Because the whole point of this essay is that the right thing isn't the right thing. But it feels so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just imagine this is your guilty pleasure. You're off over have, uh, like you're like, it feels so wrong, but so right at the same time. Uh, you're secretly writing all sorts of uh, monads in, in Scala. Oh my uh, God, Scala. Selling monads on the street. <laughs> <laughs> Turn on a red light in my window. There's Scala programming <laughs> happening here. <laughs> um, so yeah, you gotta you gotta take away the the yes. you know the right thing. That's why like if we said the MIT approach, right? Scala is the MIT approach. So this is why I wanted to say there's a couple of other dynamics at play. Two two dynamics I want to talk about. The first one is that. What we need to do when we are comparing things about, you know, about these two styles, this, this, the right thing versus worse is better. And this comes up, I think, in the second paper, worse is better is worse, is not confuse something being designed in a worse is better style with something that hasn't been well designed. Because there's a whole other category of criteria that can be applied when evaluating a system. And that is, to what extent is the design work actually any good? Like, was it something that was thought through? Was it something that was built with care? Was it something where there was a good understanding of the problems to be solved? Did design thinking happen? Because there are many cases, many, many, many cases where maybe not even that design wasn't done, but that the problem wasn't fully understood. And so the design process that happened produced a result that was not a good fit for the problem. And I read some other things that people other than Nikki Ben Borbaki <laughs> um, <laughs> wrote uh, about this worse is better stuff, um, like reflections on it, you know, blog posts, that sort of thing. And something that people do where they make a mistake is they might make a project and think to themselves, ah, yeah, I made this project and I made it in the right thing kind of way. And it had these problems. And so I went and I made a version two in a worse is better style. And that worked so much better. And so I get it. I get why worse is better. When what actually happened is the first time they made it, it was the first time they were learning about the problem. And when they went back and made it a second time, they had such a better understanding of the problem from having having built a system to attempt to solve that problem once already. So you, you have to be careful when doing these evaluations to avoid, 
you know, those other factors, because those other factors, like how well do you understand the problem? How much design thinking did you do? What strategies did you employ? Those things are orthogonal to this distinction between the right thing versus worse is better. The right thing versus worse is better is just about where does the complexity go? Does the complexity get owned by the system that you are building? Or do you push that complexity out to the users of your system? The the point of this, like, what is better about the worst is better? Yeah, that was my thing number two. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, why, what, in what way is worse better, right? And the point is not that it is better full stop. Yeah, it's not like aesthetically better or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's not some objective this is for sure the way you should do it. And there's never a reason not ever to do the right thing or like a taste thing or any of that. It is drum roll. <laughs> it's merely that it's better for adoption that people will adopt your software. That's designed in worse is better approach over the right thing, which seems counterintuitive. That seems so backwards. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, this is really an explanation of like, why is Lisp not the most popular language? Because it's clearly the right thing. It's clearly the most capable, the, the best language ever, right? Uh, in, in the minds of the Lisp community, especially at the time, which, you know, uh, Richard Gabriel's a, a big part of, right? He's, he's a designer for Common Lisp. Like, why is it losing? And this is his explanation. And yeah, you can explain, like, why does he think that this leads to more adoption, the, the worse is better approach? I actually don't know. What I do know is that somebody needs to write or maybe title a podcast, Worse is Better is Cope, because that's totally what this is. This is just Richard Gabriel struggling against the fact that Lisp lost and C and Unix won and trying to come up with some kind of an explanation for how that could be. And it's weird that it led to this particular, like, ah, yeah, I put my finger on it. This is what it is. It's that, you know, people who adopt software actually want to have a outside experience, or they're willing to tolerate a experience if it means that the thing performs better. It's like, it runs faster and it's easier to port. And so that that's that's fine, even though it means that I have to read a bigger manual and do some more error handling when I call into the system or whatever. Yeah, he, he says that the programmer is conditioned to sacrifice some safety, convenience, and hassle to get good performance and modest resource use. Yeah. And this was actually the key that made me... Like, I... In a lot of ways, I do believe this that worse is better in the sense of, like, Worse software often gets more adoption, but it's for different criteria today, I think, than what he just said here. And I think it's because, and, and actually the, the second article in some ways hints at that in, and not intentionally, but like no one's willing to trade off safety, convenience, and hassle to get good performance and modest resource use today. Instead, they're willing to trade off performance and resource use to get convenience right? Like think of like electron apps, right? Uh, we can definitively say that electron apps don't perform as well as they could on our machines, but programmers use them all the time. And we choose them because they make our implementation less complicated. Yes. They make it easier to write software that can be ported, or they make it easier to write native software. If you have a background in web development and not native development. 
Yes, exactly. So in some ways, like he's right that it's about this portability. But now that we have these platforms that enable portability for us, we can trade off performance and resource use for portability and convenience. In that case, the thing that is the worse is better in the example of Electron, is that the software being written on top of Electron or is that Electron itself? Uh, the software being written on top of Electron. It's worse in a different dimension than what he's talking about here. That's why I'm saying like, I, I do think this idea works, but not in the details he said because our values have shifted over time as our machines have become more powerful. At least, you know, really, I have to say, this is really dividing up by different subgroups because there are people, you know, who still hold to this like performance at all costs sort of thing, right? So I'll give an example of one of those because it, it's interesting that this came up, like that you mentioned Electron because mine is also like a, a project that is popular among the JavaScript crowd in the way that Electron is, which is Bun which is a, a new sort of competitor with Node.js and Deno as a like JavaScript runtime uh, that you could build web services or command line tools or other things on top of. And the whole reason that Bun exploded in popularity this past month when it, you know, burst onto the scene was because it's so much faster than Node and Deno, even though it has only a small fraction of the features. And the, the developer writing it, the solo developer who's making Bun, has explicitly set a goal of, I'm not going to support all of the Node APIs, at least not at first. We'll work towards it, but that's not the goal. Um, we're not going to guarantee that everything's going to work in exactly the same way. We're going to sacrifice that consistency. And... Uh, you'll have to be responsible for making sure that any code you write that could run on top of Bun or Node is able to handle those inconsistencies in the APIs. And there's some correctness sacrificed, but it is written to be as blazingly fast as possible. And it's just like tons and tons of work put into the implementation um, to make it so that it is screaming fast. And people just jumped all over it with with giddy excitement because part of our you know our engineering spirit or something like that as programmers is delighted by finding a case where oh somebody made the the wheel gear chain pulley turning machine turn its gear pulley chain wheels faster <laughs> there's some kind of you know delight in oh you made the machine more machiney it it's doing its machininess in an even more machiney way than it was before and this gets into so many other philosophical things, but it's something that can be measured, right? Like you can measure, oh, the performance is like 3x faster if I use this thing instead of that thing. That's awesome. I'm totally going to want the 3x faster thing. What's the cost? Oh, well, there's some inconsistency. Okay, well, what inconsistency? Well, I don't know. You'll have to just <laughs> use it. And if you find that an API works differently here than there, that's the inconsistency. Good luck. Because I didn't write documentation. I'm over here just cranking the speed knob as fast as I can crank it. Completely agree. I think the JavaScript ecosystem in this case is so interesting for some test cases on does this, does this philosophy still hold? I'll give just a slight variation that I think is still keeping with it, uh, like SWC and ES build. 
So, uh, you know, these are projects that build, you know, compile JavaScript, bundle JavaScript way faster than Babel. Or Snowpack, Gulp, Grunt, pick your thing. Okay, so keep that in mind while I, uh, I read this quote here. So we, we hear that, you know, worse is better will spread uh, like a virus. All right. And so it says, once the virus has spread, there will be pressure to improve it, possibly by increasing that functionality closer to 90%. But users have already been conditioned to accept worse than the right thing. Therefore, the worse is better software first will gain acceptance, second will condition users to accept less, and third will be improved to a point that is almost the right thing. Classic Windows. Classic Windows. <laughs> yes, yes. So the question is, though, did that actually play out, or did we accept some worse is better software, and we couldn't improve it till it was the right thing, and then we went and rewrote the right thing? Hmm. So, okay. so Babel, you know, which was used to be 6 to 5, was 6 to 5 was definitely a worse is better piece of software, right? It did these very particular things. They had some inconsistencies and it started improving where it increased in functionality, et cetera, but it never got as good as the right thing. And that's why ES build and SWC started with the right way of doing it, the low level software and built it with performance in mind from the beginning and kept the interface. Yes, and that's an interest. I, I actually just rewrote all my JavaScript build tooling, don't ask, and <laughs> was surprised to find that so many of these different JavaScript transpilers all use the same interface, and they are literally drop-in replacements for one another, which is a yeah. fascinating test case for this kind of, you know, theories about system engineering and design. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So like Bun, you gave the example where right now, at least there's definitely some trade-offs in terms of interface, but like SWC and ES build, there's no trade-offs in terms of interface. It's the exact same interface. Well, except SWC, if you go and look through its documentation, has a whole bunch of options that you can pass when invoking it that are accepted, but not supported. So that you can take a big blob of configuration that you're using from ES build or whatever, switch to SWC, and it will just ignore those flags. This is why I find this so interesting is because yeah, I that's why I said like any piece of software in isolation is so hard to do this. Is it worse is better? Is it the right thing? But once you contrast to it becomes easier to see. It's more of a spectrum than an absolute. But what I guess I'm, I'm interested in is, is it really the case today that the worst is better solution ever approximates the right thing? Or is it that there are some things like Linux, for example, that are just such a huge cost to ever switch away from that, you know, we just won't build the right thing because it, it's too expensive? And is it that like these worst is better things, yes, they do gain adoption, but they never approximate the right thing. And we never get to that good point. And someone always has to go and rewrite it from, from scratch, taking a more right thing approach. The thing that I see happening in the real world isn't, does the worse is better thing ever get improved to the point that it actually you know, matches 100% of the functionality that the right thing would have. So it's like, do they ever, you know, approach a convergence where they, you could build the same thing from either starting point? The thing that I see is that systems that are built as the right thing eventually get compromised 
and that it's so hard to maintain some kind of purity, some sort of, these are our commandments, these are our rules that we're going to adhere to as we design this system, practical realities of the world be damned. Like, I just don't think that that ever plays out, that eventually the right thing can't be kept simple, that it has to start being a little bit compromised in one way or another. And maybe that's, so that's the, 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 the thing I said earlier where it's like, oh, there's two other dynamics that are at play. The second dynamic, we touched on it very briefly, is that this is all about whether software survives. This is about whether software will be adopted and will continue to be used or whether it will wither and die like Lisp did in the face of Unix and C. And so maybe it is that, you know, the software that I'm talking about that started as the right thing and then gets compromised and gets worse does that because of survivorship bias. I'm aware of that software because it survived, because it became worse. And I'm not aware of the software that never got worse, that kept its right thing always and forever, but then died in obscurity. That second dynamic there, that this is about survival, this is about adoption, this is about how widespread is your software going to get. Like it is hard to think of, you know, what are the systems that got to being universally adopted that maintained some kind of purity of design that they are, you know, internally very simple um, or externally very simple. Rather, the interface is very simple, that they're very, you know, approachable, maybe like TCP, maybe something that's a protocol, maybe JSON is JSON, something like that. Markdown, maybe is Markdown. Markdown, there's so many variations of, right? And most of the variations are 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 attempts to make it more of the right thing, I think. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Which is weird. It, it does seem like a, a corollary here would be that if something is the right thing, it's going to be less popular, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, not only will it be less popular, like, even if you produce it, even if it's total, even if you complete it, you put it out in the world... It doesn't have the properties that people look for and are attracted to. Performance and portability. I think, see, that's where I still question it. I, like, I think, I think he's gotten onto something here about this worse is better. I just don't know if the criteria he's using is quite right. So, for example, closure. Yeah. Closure is clearly a right thing approach. Having read the closure core source code, I think I would agree. The implementation is, you know, it depends on the JVM first off. So we have to like bundle that up together, right? Yes. Um, but also it is a piece of software that hasn't changed, right? It was designed, like it's, you can go look at those graphs that have been posted. Yeah, I love those graphs, yeah. Right, and like it has not changed. It has not been radically refactored and it probably never will be. And people who have attempted to go do it. Zach Tellman, pour one out. <laughs> Yeah, nothing ever happens with those those forks, right? Or nothing is allowed to happen because they necessarily introduce complexity into the implementation that is intolerable because it's not the right thing anymore. Yeah, like there's there's this very clear, like it was designed, it is exactly what it needs to be and it cannot be anything else. And so it's not popular. Despite closure, you know, it's, it, it depends on who you're, what you're comparing it to, but it has pretty decent performance. Yes, it's not C, but Python versus Clojure. 
I'm going to, I'm going to win. Right. <laughs> in, in terms of performance with closure. Right. And portability it's on the JVM. It's the most portable thing you could imagine for non embedded software. Well, and that relationship to the JVM is fascinating in this case. It's like Electron's relationship to the V8 runtime. Mm -hmm. Like there's this, this sort of dynamic in the, in the Clojure and JVM where it's like it's the heaviness of the JVM that allows Clojure to be so light. Yeah. And that the JVM can internally be the worst in that like you know it can be an internally very messy implementation it can do all the chaos that it needs in order to be the interface to it is real yeah uh, finicky and and you have to be very particular about it and it got built up over time of all these little compromises and it was not amazing when it started yeah like the jvm is the worst is better approach uh and it now approximates the right thing a and at the same time if you compare the JVM to C++, it feels like JVM is more of the right thing <laughs> than C++, right? This is why I'm saying like, it's all yeah. this matter of perspective and where we are, especially with the, the ecosystem we have now. And so I feel like, I feel like basically what I want to say is I think this can actually be more generalized. And I think this becomes more relevant to the future of coding audience in general. If we make this less about the particular values that were in vogue in 1989 when he wrote this, uh, and more well-designed, non-changeable things, like things that are not going to morph and modify and add new features and et cetera, usually end up being less popular than those things that are you can see the potential in. You can feel like you're part of making the software better and you have to kind of work around some of the rough edges and you feel more accomplished for doing that. That's fascinating. Cause that's like, that gets into the culture of it using like basing your career on a language that follows the worse is better philosophy means you're going to be reading exciting release notes as each new version comes out and says, you know, performance is still great, but we've added this new feature or we've refactored this part of it to, to make it even faster than it was before. And I, I think we also have to just to like, kind of continue on like where I think this paper doesn't cover the whole things. And of course it's not. I mean, these are like three, three or four page papers, very short. Um, but we have like simple implementation, simple interface, complex inter implementation, complex interface. Right, it's a two by two if we wanted to do it that way. Exactly, right? And that's what I was thinking about. So like there's simple implementation, simple interface. What, what goes there, right? I, maybe like TCP? Yeah. Right, that might be where your TCP falls. Simple implementation, complex interface. You know, we, we already talked about, or sorry, simple interface, complex implementation, right? We know that's the, the right thing, right? But what about complex interface, complex implementation? Okay, there's Windows. That's Windows. There we go. We've, we've nailed it. Uh-huh, right? So, like, that's Windows. It's also Ruby. Huh, okay. Uh, in a, like, in a good way, though. Now, when you, uh, what's the interface to Ruby? Are we talking about like the interface to the compiler? Are we talking about the syntax of the programming language? Are we talking about the syntax to the programming language and the concepts 
that the programming language introduced, right? Like Ruby is a beautiful complexity. Like, I, I, you know, I, I, I am now working on a, a Ruby JIT compiler, so I'm learning more about Ruby. Yes. <laughs> yes. Ruby is not my, like, language of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who love Ruby love it for its expressiveness in being able to use all sorts of different parts, to have all sorts of different features to kind of choose and, and contrast that to, like, Python, where there should be, like, one and only one obvious way to do something. Ruby's like, let's have more. And that's always what Ruby is doing is let's have more. And like the, the grammar, there's a project now to rewrite the parser because it's such a big chore for everyone to maintain their own parsers. And so they're trying to make a, a one parser to rule them all that's, uh, you know, pluggable so that every project can use this kind of, you know, not have to re-implement it because it's a, a huge undertaking. So that it'd be like all like C Ruby and... IRB and all the different projects that are like Ruby runtimes and, and linters, or linting tools. Yeah. Yeah. LSP. Yeah. Like anything that wants to look at Ruby syntax right now has to kind of re-implement their own parser and Ruby keeps adding new syntax. Mm-hmm. So it becomes an even harder problem. And I think this is so interesting because it, it doesn't fall on this spectrum that we've been offered because it's an embracing of complexity, both at the interface and the implementation. In some ways, I think what we see here is an embracing of the complexity in both so that you, the end programmer, can have a certain kind of simplicity. And that's what I find, like, I I just, I think this paper kind of opens us up to a lot more choices and a lot more ways of thinking about our programming languages, our tools, et cetera, than, than just what we have here with the two approaches. Yeah, that's probably if I had to criticize, like, if I had to give some negative feedback about this. Um, about these papers, which I don't, I don't have to give negative feedback about everything, but I'm gonna, um, it's that the, the use of the terms worse and better, like there's an inherent value judgment in there. And I'm sure this was not done carelessly. I'm sure this was, this was, a, a something that Gabriel deliberated over, but it's, it, it makes it hard to talk about because there are so many different aspects that contribute to something being worse or better. And in these papers, they're meant in a particular way. Like it's, it's about survivability. It's about adoption. It's, it's so it's hard to keep that in mind because these open up questions about much broader aspects of design of about which you can have value judgments and you can make reflections on their effectiveness and you would want to use the words like oh yeah it's it's worse if you don't do any design at all and it's better to do design and i'm sure there's you know contrarian takes that would say well actually no there's sometimes where it's better to not do design uh, at least not up front because exploring the problem intuitively is better than exploring it in a way where you come in with preconceived notions or something like that right like there's there's so many other aspects to this that you would want to use the words worse and better to describe but those words are taken and given particular meanings yeah i think it's very intentional i think part of it is that it it makes for uh it's kind of like clickbait totally yeah how can worse be better 
There's no way you can have worse and it'd be better. That's against the definition of worse. What are you even talking about? Yeah, but he could have said, like, simple made easy, right? Is it is a... Uh-huh. And all of those, like, simple versus easy kind of things it had that same problem, but at the very least, they they started with rigorous definitions of the terms. Like, Hickey headed that off at the pass. He's like, we're going to use language in a very precise way coming into this. Yeah. And Gabriel starts off with... Two lists of four bullet points each <laughs> where these defining these terms and the definitions are the same on both sides and you have to read it so closely and it's so hard to tell apart. Yeah, it's, it's intentional, but unlike the other things by Gabriel, uh, like the later papers in the worse is better family of thought products and incommensurability that we read last time, unlike that, this first paper just feels like it makes a big soup of mud yeah i i will say that's one of the reasons i love it uh, <laughs> but the but the rebuttal goes on to set to kind of give you you know like my first rebuttal is that there really isn't a worse is better design philosophy the caricature of what this philosophy is is so ridiculous that no one would ever express a spouse or follow it uh i just love that you know this is richard gabriel talking to himself saying that like this this whole idea this is why i say this is kind of like a hacker news uh you know hot take right like this whole idea is just so ridiculous like what are you even talking about and i think i, I think had he been clearer in the first one we wouldn't have gotten this uh this masterwork of art rebutting him in the most ridiculous ways imaginable so you know you don't get rebuttals like this from rich hickey no yeah because well <laughs> <laughs> I bite my tongue. Yeah, like the rebuttal's delightful, but it, it's, I don't know that it's actually a rebuttal. Like I think the third paper is worse really better, which is really just a, hey, let me get a do-over of some explanations from the first paper that I kind of flubbed a little bit. I think the second paper's doing the same thing. I think it's, there are some dynamics in the first paper that, are hinted at, but weren't really spelled out clearly enough. So let me just spell them out a little bit because I just want to make sure everybody's thinking about that too. And so this paragraph you're reading, the first rebuttal, concludes with the dichotomy that might exist is that of right thing design versus no design. So it's that, going back to those two dynamics I brought up earlier, it's the first dynamic. It's that when we're talking about where does a given system put its complexity, does it own it internally or does it push it onto the users of that system? That is different from design versus no design. So I don't agree with the rebuttal that there is no worse is better design philosophy. I think there is. I think calling it worse is better is bad use of language because it's really about, and, and we really need some words for, who owns the complexity? you building a system or the people who are going to be the users of the system you're building. And that is such a, such a important decision to make when you're designing a system or when you're designing a feature or when you're designing an interface. Let's say interface. <laughs> when you're designing an interface, because that's the boundary between two things, right? That's the boundary between the thing you're making and the, the people who are going to use it. In interface design, should the complexity be yours or should it be your users? Like you have to make that decision over and over and over again, constantly. And there are so many different ways to come down on which side of that decision is the right one in any given circumstance. And what's 
weird about this is that it's it's these papers are asking us to consider entire large systems like Unix or C as kind of monolithic in their alignment on that philosophy about who should own the complexity. And I don't think that's fair. Like that's the rebuttal I'd make. I don't remember if that's a rebuttal that actually came up in the in the rebuttal paper by Borbaki. It does, yeah. Not to be confused with um, his mathematician father. Um, there's my expanded <laughs> lore of the Borbaki universe. Um, but should you consider all of Unix to be designed such that complexity is pushed onto the user instead of being in the internals of the system? No, I don't think that's a fair thing to make. I think it's not just between any two systems that you can make this comparison. It can be like between any two APIs on the surface of a system or one API on one system compared to another API on another system, right? Like we could start getting into how is this relevant to FOC if you wanted to, because I think that question, who should own the complexity is super relevant. And there are some better and worse choices to make there because as, you know, Gabriel has explained, survivability is at stake. Whether you choose to own the complexity yourself or push it onto your user um, does seem to, I think I agree with him in this, it does seem to have an influence on whether your software is going to be adopted and survive. But yeah, the worse and better as words are just, just terribly off the mark in terms of allowing us to talk about this dynamic in a, in a useful way. So I want to make kind of a, a meta note because we haven't really gone through the the rebuttal and I don't think we need to like go through the details of the rebuttal. It's actually not a rebuttal in, in the strictest sense. Like what this really is, uh, so there's these, these concepts called defeaters in philosophy, right? So like if you have a belief, you could have a defeater for that belief that is something that should make you give up that belief. And one way you could have a defeater is someone rebuts your belief, right? They, all the things you thought were true, they show you how they're not. Another one would be to undercut your belief. So for example, maybe you think it's raining, but then you just realized you took a psychedelic drug just a few minutes ago. Uh, you don't have any good evidence to say it's not raining. No one's rebutted that, but you might be like, uh, maybe I don't really have a good reason to think it's raining because I just took a psychedelic. Maybe I haven't been skewered from the bottom of the soles of my feet through my entire body, out my head, and then <laughs> twisted around the skewer like a flag wrapping around a flagpole. Maybe that's not what I actually exist as in this moment. Oddly specific. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes. So yes, right. This is an undercutting. And that's really what this rebuttal is trying to do. It's not trying to rebut. It's trying to undercut. It's trying to say all of the reasons you had for thinking there even was a contrast of this worse is better approach uh, and the right thing really don't exist. That there has never been a system that's really like this, that there's just trade-offs and trade-offs have to be made regardless of what system we're in. And that all of these like differences between Lisp and C are really like historical accidents, they're really just facts about computers. They're facts about like the vac the PDP eleven versus the PDP ten and the market and, and and there's really not this distinction. And to try to draw one is to just be sloppy. Yeah, which I don't agree with at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I I mean I don't agree with the rebuttal, but I just want to you know kind of characterize what the rebuttal is. I think the real point of this though was actually the last little section. The rebuttal here wants to tell us that 
the original paper not only was wrong, but that it actually taught people incorrectly. He says that the advice it gave was that we should aim for less than the right thing, that we shouldn't try to make the best thing, and instead we should aim for something less than great. And I don't think that, you know, obviously, since this is Richard Gabriel writing, obviously Richard Gabriel did not intend to give that advice, but that's what a lot of people took from it. And so now in his pseudonym, we get this statement. This advice is corrosive. It warps the minds of youth. It is never a good idea to intentionally aim for anything less than the best, though one might have to compromise in order to succeed. Maybe Richard means one should aim high, but make sure you shoot. Sadly, he didn't say that. He said, worse is better. And though it might be an attractive, mind-grabbing headline seducing people into reading his paper, it teaches the wrong lesson. A lesson he may not intend, or a lesson poorly stated. I know he can say the right thing, and I wish he had. Which is just, come on. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is Richard. Like, I just, there's so many things. Like, I, you know, I didn't get to give all the little, like, witty things in here. Like, I just, I, I do love how this rebuttal is written, even if I don't agree with the rebuttal itself. Of the three, this is the one that I wonder the most about, just because it, I do think it is him trying to help people get a better understanding of what he meant by the first one. Cause the first one, like the first one's clearly sloppily written. Right. And that gives him this, I can see him thinking, ah, oh, man, I, I feel kind of bad about how I wrote the first one. Maybe I could just rewrite it and, and publish it as a follow-up. And it would be like, you know, the clearer, more refined version that can replace the original. But instead I'm going to have some fun with it and I'm going to dunk on myself for being sloppy in the first place and at the same time, try and clarify a little bit of how people should think about it. But you know what? What would be even more fun is if I do that by kind of putting some of those arguments that people are using against it down on paper. You know, I'm going to actually take some of those counterpoints that people are making and put them down here because it feels a little bit like that, right? Like this, this, this rebuttal contains a little bit of the critiques, but I don't think it I don't think it helps. <laughs> like, I don't think it helps the understanding because, it, yeah, it's got this huge digression about the PDP-10 versus the PDP-11. Like, it's got this historical context stuff that was inserted as, like, here's an explanation for maybe some more realistic reasons why Unix won and Lisp lost. So it engages with that aspect of the original, like, it responds to that, but it doesn't really, and other than that ending section... And a little bit at the beginning, I don't think it does much to explore that dynamic introduced in the first one to either because it's being sarcastic, right? Like it's it's a it's a a fake uh, rebuttal, so it would actually be in effect meant to bolster the original argument. So it doesn't actually do that though. Like it doesn't actually help us get a better understanding of that original dynamic, but it doesn't like point out a critical failing in it either it's not a, i don't think it's a defeater i don't think it it actually um engages with that idea from the original paper about like where does the complexity go i don't really see it doing that all i see it doing is defeating the the flawed interpretation of the original argument where it's like oh yeah the original argument seems as though it's saying design versus no design and that's 
clearly stupid. Nobody's going to build a system that's not designed. Everybody's going to try and do a good job, right? Like you should never look at an organization that's behaving in a chaotic way and assume that the people there are stupid. It's that everybody is doing the best that they can in the circumstance that they're in. And maybe they have incomplete information or maybe they have more information than you have. And so you don't know what they're responding to, but like everybody's doing their best. And so I, uh, it makes that point, but I don't think that's an interesting point to make in response to the original paper because it doesn't, and maybe this is just like historical perspective allows me to see the original paper in this way, or maybe the third paper allows me to see the original paper in this way, but it, there's a dynamic in the first that is fascinating that the second one doesn't really uh, engage with, I don't think. I totally see what you're saying. And I do think this point of where does the complexity lie is interesting, but I think we have to keep in mind with this rebuttal, it's less about, you know, where does the complexity lie and does where the complexity lie actually have a, a, an important uh, role in the, uh, the potential popularity, right? And I think that's what he ultimately is trying to undercut here is saying, no, it didn't. Because there has never been a case where there was really this head-to-head -head competition between something that moved the complexity in these two different places. They were really separate use cases. But I, I agree with your general thing. I don't think this rebuttal... I actually am not sure if he meant it mostly as a fake rebuttal, or really he himself is wrestling with which one's true. Um, I think we need to move into, though, how is this... Like, while the discussion has been, you know, I think interesting and I think people who are involved in Future of Coding will see how it applies. I'm interested to hear, you know, your thoughts on, like, how does this apply to today, Future of Coding projects? What sh lessons should we learn for, you know, approaching those things? Because, you know, you, I will say, seem to really be on the right thing approach when it comes to Hest. Um, in that... I, I'm not actually doing any work on it because I haven't figured out what the right thing is yet. Yes, and that you're taking the time to design up front. You're not putting out a partially baked solution that will evolve and become the right thing over time. You want to start right. I could argue the opposite. I think I actually am doing that in that the thing that I have released so far is like some GIFs. What if you took a Nodewire programming language and put some little dots on the lines and had the move? What can you do with that? And now I'm just waiting for somebody else to take that idea and actually make it usable. Which is very much worse is better. There is no implementation.
think I would ever throw bags of my own blood at anything. I can imagine throwing it to somebody because, you know, there's a life or death situation and for some reason I have a bag of blood to help save their life. Wow, now I'm... Okay, I have a bag of my own blood. Um, Do you have a bag of my blood? Everyone has a bag of their own blood. But do you have a bag of my blood? This is a, you know, I'm I'm trying to make sure that there's not something I'm missing here. That Did you take my blood and you're going to... Yes, I... I'm pretty sure I actually do get bags of your blood, too. Ah, oh, okay. And, okay. And if you want, you can have bags of my blood. Okay. I I don't think I would throw uh, my bag of blood at a beached thing. Um, yeah. Even if it was a life or death situation? I mean, if it would help. Because life or death could mean if I throw it, I kill it. Well, that's the point, though. The point is to... Th- well, I guess you can't kill it. The point is to make it go away. Because to me, a beached thing is something I need to save. Hmm. It's supposed to be in the water, and now it's on the beach. Yeah. Probably a nice animal, but I probably shouldn't touch it because I'm not a marine biologist, and the sea would be angry at me if I did. A nice animal, like a whale or a chimera. Yeah. I assume that it's a whale that has a golf ball stuck in the blowhole. That explains a lot. Yeah. I am uh, definitely uh, down a wormhole with all of this right now. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs>